When the North Korean government hacked Sony Pictures last November, it exposed a new reality that you don't have to be a superpower to inflict damage on U.S. corporations. If I sat you down and gave you a pencil and paper and said, write a list of a dozen people that could do this. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are way more than a dozen people. There are probably three, four, five thousand people that could do that attack today. I mean, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that a terrorist group could go out and put together a team and do some real damage. ISIS hacked CENTCOM's Twitter. Caroline Kennedy's reception in Japan since arriving as U.S. ambassador is partly because she has sparked memories of her father, President John F. Kennedy. People in Japan uh, very much admire him. It's one of the ways that um, many people learned English. Uh, Almost every day, somebody comes up to me and wants to quote the inaugural address. To walk through the ambassador's official residence is to get a glimpse of history. One photo in particular caught our eye. My mother kept that picture. It was the last picture of the four of us. Justice will be done, right? Nine years ago this month, three star players on Duke's number one ranked lacrosse team were accused of rape. It took more than a year for the story to unravel and the three players to be declared innocent. But it was their coach who lost his job and reputation in the rush to judgment. You Google up one of the boys' names, my name. And then, you know, on the computer, you you saw the word rape, sexual assault, next to your name. You're outside, you're outside. Tonight, the hard road back for Coach Mike Presley. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Armin Katayan. I'm Nora O'Donnell. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The cyber attack on Sony Pictures Entertainment exposed a new reality, that you don't have to be a superpower to inflict damage on U.S. corporations, a fact that has been duly noted within corporate boardrooms and the national security apparatus. What's the significance of the Sony hack in a nutshell? The significance is that a foreign power has reached out and touched an American target. The fact that the North Korean government felt that it could do something in the United States and get away with it, that's what's significant. James Lewis, a director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, has helped shape U.S. cyber policy for decades, dealing with criminals stealing money, Russian stealing intelligence, and the Chinese stealing the latest technology. This was different because it qualified as the use of force. It qualified as an attack. There was disruption. There was destruction of data. There was an intent to hurt the company. And it succeeded, bringing a major U.S. entertainment company to its knees. Like other corporate victims of cyber attacks, Sony has released very little information and declined our request for interviews. We were allowed to film on Sony's 44-acre studio lot and inside this building where technicians were still repairing damaged computers. We do know that when people fired up their computers on the morning of November 24th, they were greeted with this skeletal image now referred to as the screen of death. It announced an undetected cyber attack that actually began weeks earlier when a malicious piece of software began stealing vast amounts of data from the Sony computer network. Now, it had begun the job of wiping Sony's corporate files. 
it was the attacker saying, I'm going to delete what you've made. I'm going to destroy your stuff. Kevin Mandia is one of the best-known cyber sleuths in the U.S., and his company, FireEye, was hired by Sony to respond immediately to the crisis. But there was only so much they could do. For lack of a better analogy, the wiping's the grand finale. That's the infamous, we ran into the house, we took what we wanted, and then we left the detonation charge behind us. And then that detonation charge goes off, you're not going back to the house anymore. And that's what happened? That's what happened. More than 3,000 computers and 800 servers were destroyed by the attackers after they had made off with mountains of business secrets, several unreleased movies, unfinished scripts, and the personal records of 6,000 employees, all of whom were given a taste of living offline. Sony made the decision to take itself off the grid. All connections to the Internet, all connections to the rest of Sony, and all connections to third parties were shut off effectively disconnecting an international corporation from the outside world and plunging itself into a pre-digital age of landline telephones and hand-delivered messages written with pen and paper. Immediately, employees start to remember the things they took for granted. Does the gate let you in the garage? You can't get your email. People's benefits can't be processed appropriately. Time cards can't be done. What if payroll's the next day? There are so many things that depend on the Internet that, quite frankly, most companies don't even know all of them until they come off the Internet and go, oh, wow, didn't see that coming. To Kevin Mandia, it looked like a military-style operation mounted by a foreign government. And when his company began comparing the Sony computer virus with the 500 million pieces of malware in its archives, it quickly came up with a nearly identical match, right down to the skull on the calling card. It was a cyber attack two years ago against South Korea's banks and broadcast networks called Dark Soul that wiped out 40,000 computers and caused $700 million in damage. We had the malware from the attacks that happened in South Korea in 2013. And these things, when put side by side, this looks like whoever hacked South Korea in 2013 is hacking Sony. And the attribution in those attacks in 2013 was to North Korea. Mandia's suspicions about North Korea, which has a well-established cyber capability and a long history of attacking its neighbor, were soon confirmed by the NSA, the FBI, and the White House. And the attackers themselves hinted at it when they contacted Matt Zeitlin of BuzzFeed.com and at least a half a dozen other online reporters, offering them everything they'd stolen from Sony. So this is the first email you got? Yep. Yeah. You know, the weekend after Thanksgiving, you know, it says that it has all this data from Sony and mm-hmm. it have all these links so that we could download the information. What followed from Zeitlin and others was two weeks of damaging, embarrassing stories from the corporate files and private emails of Sony executives as well as threats and a specific demand from the attackers that Sony not release its comedy about the assassination of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. They hate us because they ain't us! (laughs) Soon all the world will see what an awful movie Sony Pictures Entertainment has made. That part may have been true. (laughs) Sony scares CEOs. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the difference. Every CEO is walking around going, how do I feel if my email's out on the Internet? How would I feel if my machines got disrupted? So all of a sudden, every chief information security officer is now talking to their board because every board wants to know, hey, is this the new normal? And it may well be. Kevin Mandia says even big corporations with sophisticated IT departments are no match for the dozens of countries that now have offensive cyber war capabilities. All advantage goes to the offense in cyber. It just does. On the defensive side, 
you have to say, I must defend all 100,000 machines, all 50,000 employees. The offensive side thinks, I only need to break into one, and I'm on the inside. And any company or any corporation is as strong as its weakest link? In a way, yes, in security. The nation-state threat actors or hackers target human weakness not system weakness. And there's no shortage of weaknesses. Most company employees are allowed to browse online or visit Facebook on corporate computers, and many take them home for personal use. All it takes to contaminate a network is for one person to unwittingly access an infected file that looks realistic, like an Adobe Flash Player update or an email that pretends to be from Apple support. And then what happens when they click on them? They compromise their machine. And now that machine, being on the inside of a corporate network, can be used as a beachhead to increase access. And that's what happened at Sony. Eventually, the North Koreans were able to obtain the passwords and credentials of the company's computer system administrators and build them right into the malware that carried out the attack. With help from anybody? You know, anything's possible. I simply don't know. How sophisticated was the malware that they used was this brand new stuff? It was sophisticated enough that it works on the vast majority of companies. You know, the FBI is quoted as saying this would work at over 90% of the companies that they, they deal with. We're going to see more and more companies hacked. We're going to see deeper levels of destruction. So you're saying we're at the beginning? Yeah, it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. If you want to talk about state-of-the-art hacking or what's going on in the international cyber arms market, John Miller is a good place to start. He turned down a job with the NSA in a government car while he was still in high school because he says he was already making more money doing private consulting work and honing his skills as a penetration tester. So you're a hacker? I was. Um, now I'm a, you know, a computer security professional. But yeah, I mean, for the majority of my career, I was an ethical hacker where I would actually go out and hack companies and then work with them to make sure they didn't get hacked by right. somebody else. Since Miller says he's been well paid to hack into nuclear power plants by utility companies, we wanted to know what he thought about the Sony attack and the malware the North Koreans used to pull it off. If I sat you down and gave you a pencil and paper and said, write a list of a dozen people that could do this. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are way more than a dozen people. There are probably three, four, five thousand people that could do that attack today. And not all of them are in friendly countries. No, not all of them are in friendly countries. And the number is growing rapidly. I mean, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that a terrorist group could go out and put together a team and do some real damage. I mean, ISIS hacked CENTCOM's Twitter. The barrier to entry is low. Miller's previous job was leading a research team for a company that made and sold offensive cyber weapons to the U.S. government. He's currently a vice president of Silence, a company that makes next-generation antivirus software for banks and Fortune 500 companies. It's currently marketing a product it claims would have detected and stopped the Sony hack while it was in progress. How sophisticated was this attack? Not very. When you look at it in contrast to the capabilities that the United States government are deploying, it is nowhere close to being sophisticated. My favorite analogy is the malware that was used to hack Sony is like a moped, and the malware being deployed by United States intelligence agencies is like an F-22 fighter jet. It's much more sophisticated. It's much harder to detect. And yet still, if this is a moped, 
there were only a handful of companies in the United States that would have been able to survive this attack. And that really is the scary part, is it does not take an overly sophisticated attack to compromise these huge global multinational brands. Miller says there have been other major cyber attacks like the one against Sony, but they didn't get as much attention. In 2012, Iran was blamed for an attack against the headquarters of Saudi Arabia's national oil company, Aramco, that destroyed 30,000 computers. Iran has also been accused of a cyber assault against a group of casinos owned by Sheldon Adelson, a vocal enemy of the regime in Tehran. And there have been others. I've worked with companies before in the oil and gas space that have had control system networks get compromised by malware and and they've lost control of their floating oil platforms. I remember reading about that. Yeah, yeah, no, you didn't read about it. There was no need to disclose, no customer information got leaked. So these things happen more often than the public knows? Absolutely. There's a lot the public doesn't know about, including an active international underground market in cyber weapons, like the one that was used to take down Sony's computers. Miller took us to a site on the dark web where you can buy them. This is actually a list of black market exploits that I was contacted from a, a Russian hacker that he was trying to sell and his price, right? So what does this one do? Flash so player. this is a, a vulnerability in that software that would allow someone to take over control of your computer. 39,000, 29,000, 39,000. Yeah, majority of them were 30. That's $30,000 payable in Bitcoin, the virtual currency of choice on the dark web. For the most part, the Internet is completely unregulated. It's the Wild West. It truly, truly is the Wild West right now. What we're seeing are people getting pulled out onto the street and shot. And it's like, where's the sheriff? There's no sheriff. When I started doing this stuff about 20 years ago, there were things that were top secret. You know, only NSA and FBI knew about them. You weren't allowed to even talk about them in public. You can download them now for free. James Lewis of the Center for Strategic and International Studies knows better than most that there are no easy solutions. He says the U.S. can deter catastrophic cyber attacks from China and Russia by responding in kind. But how do you respond to a rogue state like North Korea for an attack against major corporations like Sony? Turning off the lights in North Korea, no one would notice. It happens all the time. Right. Uh, going after a North Korean movie studio, it would probably be a relief for the people there. The only pressure point we really have is going after the leadership, going after the revenue streams coming to the leadership. And that's what the Obama administration has done, at least publicly. Lewis and others believe that it will take a technological breakthrough in cyber warfare defense to solve a problem technology created. But that could take years. Legislation forcing companies to improve cybersecurity has gone nowhere. There's a reluctance uh, in the Congress to force companies to do anything. The administration shares that reluctance. We were lucky until this year. Hopefully we'll be a little luckier for a bit longer. In the time being, keep your fingers crossed. I used to say that the U.S. had a, a faith-based defense when it came to cybersecurity because we had faith that the people who didn't like us weren't going to do anything bad. That's what Sony has changed, is that we had somebody who doesn't like us step out and say, how far can I go with the Americans? And that's where um, faith isn't enough. Visit the BuzzFeed Newsroom and see the bizarre emails designed to spread Sony's secrets. Go to 60MinutesOvertime.com, sponsored by Pfizer.
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is a pivotal time in U.S.-Japanese relations. China is aggressively looking to assert itself in Asia. The U.S. and Japan are negotiating what would be the biggest trade deal in a generation. And old wounds have reopened almost 70 years after the end of World War II. So it was surprising that President Obama nominated Caroline Kennedy to be America's ambassador to Japan. She had no foreign policy experience and limited knowledge of East Asia. But after a year and a half on the job, Ambassador Kennedy has earned the respect of Japan's prime minister and the Japanese people. It has also helped that the Kennedy name still resonates in Japan. Tradition calls for the new American ambassador to Japan to receive a ceremonial carriage ride to the Imperial Palace. What made Caroline Kennedy's ride different was the thousands who lined the streets to see her off to the palace, where she presented her credentials to the emperor. Ambassador Kennedy received one rainy morning last month during what was supposed to be an ordinary visit to a plum blossom festival. Her reception in Japan since arriving in November 2013 is partly because she has sparked memories of her father, President John F. Kennedy. People in Japan uh, very much admire him. It's one of the ways that um, many people learned English. Uh, almost every day, somebody comes up to me and wants to quote the inaugural address, and including senior figures in the military or you know people on the street. Ask not what your country can do for you. President Kennedy is still seen by many Japanese as a reflection of the America they idealize, young and dynamic. Last month at Japan's National Archives, the JFK exhibit drew visitors such as Japan's prime minister. At Tokyo's Waseda University, students lined up two hours in advance for a symposium on JFK. There's so much rich history between your family and Japan. That's been a very powerful part of this experience for me. He hoped to be the first American president to visit Japan. And so I think for me coming here, that's an extra layer of meaning that, that this posting has for me. John Kennedy was nearly killed by the Japanese during the Pacific War. Only 18 years later, he entered the White House and made reconciliation with his former enemy a top priority. He had planned to visit Japan in 1964 and reunite crew members from his PT-109 boat with the captain and crew of the Japanese destroyer that had sunk his boat. And that would have obviously been incredible, but I just was able to meet uh, the widow of the destroyer captain a few days ago, and so I felt like he was looking down on me and you know, history was really coming full circle. That Caroline Kennedy, who is now 57, has found herself serving her country halfway around the world is not what she expected when she went to the White House in the winter of 2013, an empty nester looking for a job. How did this come about? Uh, well, I was uh, in Washington talking to um, people in the White House about how I might uh, be able to serve the president. And so um, they said, well, what about ambassador to Japan? And so I was like, Japan? <laughs> so anyway, I said, well, I would love to do that. But did you say, you know, why Japan or 
am I the right person for this? Oh, yeah, I said that too. <laughs> <laughs> but since they had suggested it, I figured they had thought it through, and they, they had. And I came home, and I said, okay, well, guess what they said. And, uh, of course, nobody in my family could have possibly imagined, and everybody got so excited because it was just such an unexpected and amazing opportunity. And I am proud to endorse Senator Barack Obama for President of the United States. President Obama owed Caroline Kennedy. She and her uncle Ted propelled Obama by endorsing him over Hillary Clinton early and publicly at a critical time during his first campaign. I mean, some ambassadorships are ceremonial. This is a really big job. Was there any hesitation? No. (laughs) All the more reason. Um, You know, that's what's so exciting about it when you feel like you can really make a contribution. For the Japanese, the appointment was seen as a meaningful sign of the importance America placed on its alliance with Japan. Oh, we were so honored. Kuniko Inoguchi is a member of parliament from Japan's ruling party. Everybody was so very happy. We thought Japan was treated as in a very special way. And she has been so effective. I think she's one of the most beloved foreign ambassadors in town. Many Japanese have been struck by her informality as ambassador and by how she likes to jog regularly around Tokyo like any normal tourist. Caroline Kennedy is known to be private, but she seems more at ease than ever in this job. And the Japanese value her because it's believed she can deliver messages directly to President Obama. Do you have the president's ear? Do you have a special relationship with him? Well, I mean, yes. Depends what you mean by special relationship. (laughs) But I feel that if I need to talk to him, I can. There is plenty to talk about. What is going on in East Asia, Kennedy believes, is the story of the century. And yet the news is dominated by the Middle East. Right. You guys are missing the story, okay? How? Because what is going on out here in Asia is there is so much opportunity for America. There is so much uh, goodwill towards America. There is economic opportunity. Ambassador Kennedy is keen on a massive trade deal, the biggest since NAFTA, that is now being negotiated among the U.S., Japan, and 10 other countries. But another issue is looming over East Asia, the ascendance of China. Relations between China and Japan are tense. A booming China has quadrupled its military spending, doesn't like Japan, and has designs on islands the Japanese consider theirs. What many Americans may not know is the United States is obligated to come to Japan's aid in case of an attack. How much does Japan depend on the U.S. to defend it? Well, we are responsible for the defense of Japan, and we have a security treaty. And so what's being debated here now is the ability of Japan to come to the aid, for example, of us if we are being uh, threatened. That debate is being led by Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who wants to unshackle the country's military from its post-war restrictions, making neighbors in Asia very nervous. And what's the U.S. position? Well, we support this because Japan is an incredibly capable, trusted partner with whom we have very close relationships at the working level and the military. Ambassador Kennedy herself has forged a close working relationship with Abe. He is a very strong partner for us. I see him regularly. I think he's very uh, pro the U.S. alliance. 
What he's really committed to is um, restoring Japan's ability to be an effective uh, leader on the world stage. At times, Abe hasn't made it easy for Kennedy. He stoked anger throughout much of Asia one month into her assignment by publicly paying homage to Japan's war dead, including 14 war criminals, at Tokyo's infamous Yasukuni Shrine. More recently, he's argued that widely accepted accounts of Japanese soldiers abusing what were known as comfort women during World War II are exaggerated. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, as President Obama said when he was here in the region last spring, I mean, the, the violation of human rights that that represents is deplorable. But I think our interest is to encourage the countries to work together and resolve those differences. That's a diplomatic answer. But it's true. No, but what is true is there are thousands of women who were enslaved during World War II in military brothels to service the Japanese military. I mean, is he trying to whitewash history? Well, the challenge for for Japan-Korea, for Japan-U.S., uh, is to learn from the past so that these horrible violations are never, ever repeated. Abe wasn't elected to revise the past, but to revitalize the economy, an imperative given what's happened to Japan. There was a time 30 years ago when Japan's economic might was seen as a threat to the United States. Japan's electronics and auto industries were the envy of the world. Then in the 1990s, Japan's bubble burst. Deflation and stagnation became the norm. One lost decade turned into two, leaving many to wonder whether Japan's best days are long past. That was even before the tsunami hit four years ago. This was the coastal town of Otsuchi then, and this is the town today. Little has risen but dirt. Japan's population is aging faster than any other countries, and the nation is suffering from a shortage of workers. The Japanese are feeling diminished, especially in comparison to China. But Caroline Kennedy is bullish on Japan and seems eager to promote the U.S.-Japanese alliance. She's patient when it comes to the endless ceremonial visits, a requirement of the job. I'm a very diplomatic person. How so? I feel that I've been representing my family legacy all my life. And so in that way, it's, um, it's an extension of some of that work. But this is obviously much more important. This room uh, has a lot of history. To walk through the ambassador's official residence is to get a glimpse of history. In this room, one month after World War II, a defeated Emperor Hirohito paid a visit to General Douglas MacArthur, a sign the Americans were now in charge. In her library, Kennedy has pictures of her own role in history. One photo in particular caught our eye. The Kennedy family watching bagpipers from the Scottish regiment, the Black Watch, on the south lawn of the White House. The date, November 13, 1963. My mother kept that picture. It was the last picture of the four of us uh, that was taken. So um, it meant a lot to her. So I was unhappy to have it. Many Americans remember you as that five-year-old girl who was gallivanting around the, the Oval Office, those pictures. What do you remember about your dad? 
Oh, well, I remember, you know, things that little kids would remember. And I do remember playing in the office, and I remember the bedtime stories he used to tell me. And I feel really lucky that I do have the memories that I have in the sense that my brother and I were the most important things in his life. Hi, Jack. Nice to meet you. While we were in Japan, we saw Jack Schlossberg, JFK's grandson and the youngest of Caroline's three children. Arigato gozaimasu for your hospitality and for taking such good care of my mother. At 22, he certainly has the bearing and the look, thick hair and all, of another Kennedy politician. As for Caroline Kennedy, being ambassador to Japan appears to suit her just fine. She's not thinking about the future. I've seen things change too much uh, throughout my life, so I, I figure, you know, I'll, f- I'll figure it out. When it, something will occur to me, I'll get a bright idea, and hopefully it'll be a good one. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Duke University celebrated another national title this past week with an impressive win over Wisconsin in the NCAA basketball tournament. But nine years ago this very month, there was little to celebrate at Duke when its athletic program found itself in the middle of a firestorm. Three star lacrosse players on their number one ranked team were accused of rape. It took more than a year for the case to unravel, the three players to be declared innocent, and the district attorney who led the charge against them to be disbarred. A forgotten chapter of that story is what happened to the Blue Devils head coach at the time, Mike Pressler. The reigning national coach of the year, Pressler was the only person at Duke to lose his job as a result of the scandal. Pressler has never spoken at length about what happened to him at Duke, the rush to judgment that has left a mark on his life to this day. You Google up one of the boys' names, my name, and then, you know, on the computer, you, you saw the word rape, sexual assault, next to your name. That just was, even today, I get emotional about it. Right now, as I speak to you, I mean, I'm getting angry over that. On March 13, 2006, the Duke lacrosse team held an off-campus party at this house, which included alcohol and two strippers, one who later claimed she was attacked and raped in a bathroom. When Pressler, then in his 16th season at Duke, found out about the party and the woman's claims, he confronted his captains. I asked each one of them to their face, one at a time, the astonishment um, on their face. And when you know your people, I knew exactly from their reaction to the allegations, this was absolutely untrue. The problem was, few others did. This is how the late Ed Bradley described the media storm surrounding the Duke rape case here on 60 Minutes. The district attorney, Mike Nifong, took to the airways giving dozens of interviews, expressing with absolute certainty that Duke lacrosse players had committed a horrific crime. There's no doubt in my mind that she was raped and assaulted at this location. His comments fueled explosive news coverage and fed public suspicion of the team before much of the evidence was gathered. D.A. Nifong referred to the lacrosse players as a bunch of hooligans whose daddies could buy them expensive lawyers. When Mike Nifong starts to bring race, using words like hooligans and a wall of silence from a team that um, wasn't being silent, what are you thinking? You could just see that they were, there was a different agenda for, for these folks. 
Nifong was in the midst of a tight election campaign. He fed the growing race and class divide long simmering in Durham, refusing to consider any evidence that didn't fit his narrative of the player's guilt. I am not going to allow Durham's view in the mind of the world to be a bunch of lacrosse players from Duke raping a black girl in Durham. It was transparently obvious that nothing had happened. Chris Kennedy is the senior deputy director of athletics at Duke, where he has been on staff since 1977 and hasn't forgotten the mob mentality on campus that spring. A sizable portion of people in the university had turned their backs on those kids and believed that the most heinous crimes uh, had been committed. At its worst, how bad was it? Other than the death of my wife, it's the worst thing I've ever been through. It was, it was painful because you had 46 kids who were really suffering, who knew for a long period of time that two, three, four, some number were going to be indicted based on no evidence whatsoever. Um, imagine the stress of that on the kids and on their parents and everything. Justice will be done, right? Pressler soon found the stress bearing down on his team, bleeding into his personal life exposing his wife and two young daughters, Janet and Maggie, to the hatred drowning his team. You get an email from a certain Duke student. What if your daughter Janet was next? That, that was the first time where I just really got, I think the word enraged. You know, I, I just, we got to stop this one. This, this, uh, this is over the top. To ease his anger, Pressler told us he spent endless hours, both day and night, walking through Duke Forest near his home, literally screaming at the trees. Right now, as I go through this, um, on this walk, stuff's coming back to me now that I haven't thought about since that day. The emotion, you know, rage. His return with us marked the first time he'd been back in nine years. You wake up in the morning, there'd be signs in your front, in your front porch. You know, I'd, I'd get up at 5 a.m., take those signs down because I didn't want the girls to see those things. What did they say, Mike? Um, you know, one was uh, that, that just tore me apart, rapist, lover. You know, another one, do your duty, turn them in, those things, those kind of things. And, you know, that, you know, that's very hurtful. I don't care if it's 10 years ago or 10 minutes ago. It never leaves you. Yeah. And Three weeks into the, the scandal, Pressler reached a crossroads, stand by his players, or save himself and his career. I was actually advised early on to distance myself from them. And, 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 and at that time, I, I, that was like blasphemy. You're, no, you're, you're telling me that? We don't run. We don't quit. You know, that's not how we're made. You finish, you sign on, you finish what you start at all costs. You know, that's it. You finish it. The word that comes up time and time and time again with you is loyalty. Why is that word so important to you? It's everything. It's everything. And without that, as a man, you have nothing. With the rape scandal at full boil here at Duke, Pressler was summoned to the office of then-athletic director Joe Oliva, where he was issued an ultimatum. Resign immediately or risk being fired. So Pressler resigned. The sacrificial lamb needed to appease protesters and protect the school's gold-plated image. 
Chris Kennedy, Duke's senior deputy director of athletics, spoke with us recently over the objections of administrators at his university, who told Kennedy, quote, it was not in Duke's interest or his to talk to us on camera. I think that in some quarters of the university administration, there was some belief that this may have happened and that if that's the case, they had to respond. But it turns out nothing did happen. Correct. And Mike's the only one to lose his job over this. Correct. And as we sit here nine years later, what do you think of that? I think that a lot of officials at the university have come to the realization, or came to the realization within a year or so, that probably Mike shouldn't have lost his job. You gotta run to the outside. But he did. Almost overnight, the reigning National Coach of the Year had become toxic and untouchable in the world of college lacrosse. Pressler applied and was turned down for volunteer high school positions, but he still hadn't hit rock bottom. That happened at his alma mater, Washington and Lee, where Pressler had been the captain of both the lacrosse and football teams. What happens there? You know, I wouldn't even interview, get an interview on campus. They met me at a rest stop in Lynchburg, Virginia. You're at a rest stop? At rest like stop. Like you're a fugitive from justice or something? I was not allowed to interview on campus. Did you get to the point where you thought, I'm never going to coach again? I'm going to have to think of doing something else with my life? I did for a little bit during that time, but then this, this, this hits me like a, a, a lightning bolt today. If I don't coach again, they've won, and they were not going to win. Some 700 miles away in Smithfield, Rhode Island, Bryant University President Ron Makeley was in the midst of rebuilding his athletic department. He did something no one else had done. He listened and started searching for the truth. We read uh, uh, a number of uh, documents in the papers, and uh, we followed up and talked to former coaches at various places. And what I heard consistently was that Mike was a stand-up coach, he was a great coach, and he had gotten himself into a firestorm in which Duke treated him very badly. Where others saw risk, Makeley saw opportunity. He hired Pressler in August of 2006 to take over a nondescript Division II program. Everybody got caught up in the Roman numeral, you know, Division I, how could he take a Division II job? Coaching for me has always been pure. The Roman numeral never mattered. The limelight never mattered. I didn't get into this for any of that. If Pressler knew one thing, it was how to build a winner. At Bryant, that meant drastic measures. And I'll never forget, 77 kids tried out, and we ran a, a 5K. And I said, if I beat any one of you, you're cut on the spot. Let an old man beat you. So I, I beat 15 of them. <laughs> and those 15 walked off the field, never to be seen. And at Bryant Lacrosse, we had to change the culture. And we had to, uh, we had to come up with a, a work ethic, a toughness. It's like two-hand touch out there. Now in his ninth season at Bryant, Pressler has matched that toughness and work ethic with relentless preparation and unfiltered honesty. This is physical Bryant lacrosse. Nobody runs down the gut and, and lives to, to play another day. On the wings for the Bulldogs. His leadership has turned a Division II afterthought into a legitimate top 20 Division I program. Oh, thanks to save. 
Last year, his Bulldogs reached the quarterfinals in the NCAA tournament after knocking off number two seed and 11-time national champion, Syracuse. And the Bulldogs stunned the orange! In what was called the biggest upset in the history of the tournament. Mike, for you, was there a little of, hello, I'm Mike Pressler, and I'm back? I think there was a little bit of that, just a little. Um, you know, the reaction from my girls when I got home and the emotion of that. You know, Maggie said, Dad, you're back. Last month, Pressler was back on a North Carolina lacrosse field for the first time since the spring of 2006. His Bryant Bulldogs faced off against the University of North Carolina, ranked second in the country. On paper, Pressler's team appeared overmatched. But Bryant gave the Tar Heels all they could handle before falling by a single goal in the closing minutes. You know what? That is the Bryant team I've been waiting to see for the last six games. Loyalty and respect are the links that tie Pressler to his current and former players. Several from his 2006 Duke team, including some who were caught up in the controversy, have gone so far as to donate funds to Bryant's program. Given Bryant's rise, it should come as no surprise that Pressler's turned down more money from a half dozen elite programs. We got better today. Who have long since forgotten about Duke. And I know every year since that case was dismissed, big schools have come to him and said, we'll pay you three times. We'll give you camps. We'll give you the perks. You'll have the beautiful locker room campus environment that you can't get at a small school like Brian. And he's never come to me and said, Ron, can you match this offer? He has made a commitment to stay here. And that kind of loyalty, which he showed to his team, and which his team ultimately showed back to him, uh, is something that's very rare in society today. You've stayed. Not even better than I. No. No, thank you. Why? Got to go back to the events of uh, the summer of 06. You know, for me to turn and, and leave a place and, and the administration that has given me and my family so much and to go do it somewhere else, um, I couldn't live with myself. I'm Steve Croft. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. And tomorrow, be sure to watch CBS This Morning.